News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Become fascinated with watching what is unfolding in the United States just in the last 48 hours. You know, you go home, get to open that computer, start reading all the news, and I can't seem to get up and move away from my desk because I am watching what is unfolding as the U.S. House of Representatives tries and keeps trying seven times now they've tried to elect a House speaker. It's just a show that I feel like I can't turn away from, right? So they're at a crossroads right now. There's 20 people who won't vote for him, votes that he needs, Kevin McCarthy needs, and yet he doesn't seem to be able to get them because many of them say they absolutely will not under any circumstances vote for him. So they're just going to keep doing this. Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher has commented on the situation. He talked about how chaotic this whole situation is. It looks messy, but democracy is messy. Democracy is messy by by design, by design. And that's a feature. That's a feature, not a bug of our system. We air it all out in the open for the American people to see. Because at the end of the day, the president's not in charge, the Supreme Court's not in charge, the Speaker of the House is not even in charge. The American people are in charge. That is Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher. Good point, right? Democracy is messy. This is democracy in action. But it seems to be a stalemate. So what happens next? Joining us now is Linda Kenyon, who's a CBS Washington reporter. Linda, thanks for being here this morning. Oh, sure. My pleasure. So can you tell us what's going to happen today? Do we have any idea? Well, you know, we do and we don't. We realize that uh, this is stretching now into its third day of balloting, where they're going to come in at noon Eastern and they're going to have their seventh round of balloting for Speaker of the House. The problem is that in order to become Speaker of the House, the majority party has to reach 218 votes. It's just a case of arithmetic. And the person who wants so much to be Speaker of the House and has wanted it for so many years uh, is Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy has not been able to secure 218 votes. He's gotten as close as 201 and uh, in six ballotings. And uh, in fact, the Democrats, who will never have a Speaker of the House, you know, logically speaking, because uh, they are now the minority party, Uh, They have nominated Hakeem Jeffries, who is their top Democrat in the House, and he has consistently outpolled the Republican Kevin McCarthy, although he, too, has not gotten to the 218. And uh, so the Democrats are just kind of watching the show and seeing how the Republicans are going to kind of wiggle their way out of of this. But Kevin McCarthy is in a very tough spot, and uh, he says he is not backing down. In fact, he said on the first day of the balloting, he said, I have the record for the, for the longest speech in the House of Representatives of more than eight hours. He says, I will set the record for having the most number of ballots to become Speaker of the House if I have to. I'm not, I'm not stepping down. What is the word on concessions at this point? Because obviously he has to try to change the minds, right, of some of the people who voted against him. Well, he's consistently had a group of 20 of the most conservative members of the Republican Party, members of uh, what is known as the House Freedom Caucus, And they have said that uh, they want him to make a number of concessions. And within that small group is a group of about five who say, we don't care about the concessions. We just don't want him. And so it's very, very hard because McCarthy can only stand to lose four votes just based on the simple arithmetic and the population in the House. 
and still become Speaker of the House. So uh, among the concessions, uh, he said he would not budge on, although we're hearing now that uh, he may have actually budged on it early this morning, and that is that any one member of the House of Representatives of the Republican Party can ask for a recall vote or um, a uh, a message to uh, vacate the chair is what they call. And, and so uh, one member can say, I don't like the job he's doing because of A, B, C, or D. And so now let's have a vote to remove the speaker. And uh, McCarthy said he wouldn't do that based on one member's vote. Um, he agreed to five, and that was okay with some members of the House Freedom Caucus, and, uh, but not everybody. So now we're hearing he's agreeing to one. I guess we'll see if that is in fact true when they come to the floor. But some of the other concessions that they wanted was uh, they wanted more uh, House Freedom Caucus members to be represented on committees so they can more effectively uh, influence legislation. Uh, some of the uh, other concessions, which seem, you know, not unreasonable by any stretch, is that there be a 72-hour rule, which says that a bill must be published 72 hours before a vote on said bill so that the members of the House have a t- chance to read it. Now, that's not a radical idea. That has been in place anyway. It just hasn't always been followed. Huh. So there's that. Okay. Well, it sounds yeah. like you're going to have a very interesting day. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you. And you have a great day, too. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of people are taking their cases to the Human Rights Tribunal. The number of cases that were brought to the tribunal went from 1,460 in 2019 to 3,192 in 2022, which means they have quite a backlog that the tribunal needs to tackle. Now, BC is boosting funding for the tribunal and the Community Legal Assistance Society by as much as $4.5 million a year to try to tackle some of this backlog. Let's talk about this. Is it going to help? Laura Track is with us now, Director of the Community Legal Assistance Society. Laura, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Will this money make a big difference? This money will make an absolutely huge difference. The tribunal's budget has been underfunded for quite some time. And as you mentioned, for a number of years, the tribunal's caseload hovered between 1,200 and 1,400 new complaints filed each year and then just skyrocketed in 2020 to well over 3,000. So a doubling of cases in the last couple of years and certainly not a doubling of, of resources for the tribunal. So this new funding is going to allow them, we anticipate, to hire more decision makers, more case managers, just more staff and resources to help move these cases through the system fairly and efficiently. And so why this huge increase in cases? What is going on? What are you seeing? I think there are a few explanations for the increase in cases. Our organization and the tribunal have done a lot of work to improve knowledge and awareness of the Human Rights Tribunal and the protections under the code. Both the tribunal and our Human Rights Clinic have made a lot of effort to outreach to Indigenous communities in particular, which research has found uh, underutilized the Human Rights Tribunal despite experiencing significant amounts of discrimination in our communities. We've also seen the reinstatement of the Human Rights Commission in the last couple of years, and they've done incredible work to raise awareness of issues of human rights, of discrimination, and ensure people understand that when they do experience, say, 
sexual harassment at work or racial profiling from the police or they're experiencing disability-related barriers in their homes or their jobs, but they have recourse to a decision-making body that can provide some measure of, of justice and accountability for these instances of discrimination. So this increase in awareness of um, the rights protected by human rights law and the existence of the Human Rights Tribunal, I think that's driven a pretty significant amount of the increase. We also know that um, a number of the cases filed over the last couple of years at the Human Rights Tribunal have related to public health measures. People who object to mandatory masking policies at restaurants and businesses, for example, um, people who uh, oppose mandatory vaccination policies at their work. A number of the cases moving through the system presently involve complaints about uh, about COVID-related measures. So clearing that backlog will make a significant difference for sure to the, to the demand at the tribunal, but I think we're still going to see that elevated number of cases because more and more people are aware of the human rights and uh, the way that they're protected by law. Can you give us an idea of what it's like to file a complaint, like what the process is like for people who don't understand perhaps the work that is done there? Absolutely. Filing a complaint involves filling out a fairly lengthy complaint form explaining the discrimination that you've experienced. Maybe that's sexual harassment in your workplace. Maybe you're filing a complaint on behalf of your child who has learning disabilities that aren't being accommodated at school. The range of cases that can be brought to the Human Rights Tribunal is quite vast, but all of them involve discrimination. Some allegation of poor treatment or failure to accommodate someone's protected characteristic like their disability, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, and so forth. And what we've been seeing over the last few years is that after people file a complaint, they go to the the lengths of deciding to initiate uh, litigation and file a human rights complaint with the tribunal, they're waiting up to a year, even just to hear from the tribunal whether their complaint is accepted for filing and through the screening process. So that's one significant area of backlog and delay that we anticipate this um, funding increase to help address. It shouldn't be taking such a long time for people even to just move forward to be able to, to take the first step with the complaint process. Um, when I first started doing this work about five years ago, that step was taking a month to six weeks, right. that screening stage. So we're really hoping that the process itself can start moving along more quickly. Is the, process, is, yeah, is the process therapeutic for people? Like what happens once they've got their hearing going? Yeah, so that's another place where uh, we're seeing significant delay over the last few years. People have been waiting three, four, sometimes five or more years for their case to get to a hearing and an ultimate decision. And hearings are a lot like a, a court trial. Both parties present evidence, they give testimony under oath, a decision maker reviews documents and other forms of evidence, and then they make a decision about whether the complainant has met their burden of proof to establish their case of discrimination. Is the process therapeutic? I think it can be therapeutic for many people 
to seek accountability for the discrimination that they've experienced, to go through that process, to tell their story, and to seek justice for what's happened to them. But because the process takes such a long time, and it is an adversarial litigation process, it can also be re-traumatizing. It's a very difficult uh, undertaking for a person who may be marginalized, may be experiencing other disadvantage in their life, to take the step of initiating a complaint and holding their, let's say, former employer or a service provider or a huge institution like the police or a government ministry uh, accountable for the discrimination that they've caused. Right. How much accountability is there then? So if they have a decision that goes their way, what mm-hmm. what can they do about that? What is the accountability? Yeah, most decisions involve monetary compensation. So the tribunal will order the, it's called the respondent, the employer or institution to compensate the complainant for the impact the discrimination had on them. And maybe that takes the form of compensation for the injury to, it's called the injury to their dignity, feelings and self-respect. And the compensation might also include, let's say, lost wages because they lost their position for a discriminatory reason. The tribunal also has the power to order more systemic type remedies. In a recent case involving an Indigenous uh, mother complaining that the VPD had discriminated against her, the VPD was ordered by the tribunal to take remedial training and receive education about um, the relationship between police and, and Indigenous people and to improve their, their dealings with Indigenous people. So the tribunal has a range of of options available to it in terms of the orders it can make at the end of a hearing. And those orders have the force of law. If a respondent does not pay the compensation or take the step ordered by the tribunal, a complainant has the option of seeking to enforce that order in court, just like if uh, a defendant or respondent didn't comply with an order of the court. Interesting. So where can people get more information about this, Laura? Our human rights clinic uh, has a pretty comprehensive website, bchrc.net. You can learn more about the human rights code and the way that rights are protected by that law. That's also where people can apply for our legal services. We provide free legal representation and advice to people who have made or are thinking about making a human rights complaint to the human rights tribunal. The Human Rights Tribunal's website also has lots of information. And then I mentioned the Human Rights Commission. It can be a bit confusing for folks to know the difference between the three, but the commission does more systemic work, education, advocacy, campaigning, and um, and has a, a very informative website about all sorts of different human rights issues. So this money that the government announced yesterday, then, is it is it going to arrive right away? Will this have an impact right away? We anticipate that the money will start to flow in the next fiscal year, so after April and the the next budget that the provincial government rolls out. But our clinic is excited that uh, we believe that we can start recruiting very soon for at least one new legal advocate to help support our team and provide additional advice and and capacity for us to represent clients at the Human Rights Tribunal. So we're going to be taking action now, and we anticipate that changes at the tribunal, new hiring, maybe some process changes as well made possible by the new resources, but those will probably start to flow in the coming months. Well, Laura, thanks so much for uh, joining us this morning. Thanks very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Now, this is a study that is being touted as the first of its kind. It's from BC Children's Hospital. And the research shows, according to them, that breastfeeding can protect newborns from asthma risk due to antibiotic exposure. I know, I'm thinking I need somebody to explain this to me too, right? So let's do that. Joining us now is Dr. Sharice Peterson, who's a research associate at the Turvey Lab at BC Children's Hospital. Dr. Peterson, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about this research. Well, okay, can you first of all explain to us what the research was about? So the research is about this link between antibiotics exposure in the first year of life and an elevated risk of having asthma by five years. And we've appreciated that there's this connection um, for a few years now. And actually, there's been a lot of effort to reduce unnecessary antibiotic prescriptions in the first year of life. And that's really wonderful. And it's actually tracked with uh, reduced incidences of childhood asthma. But we realized that we cannot eliminate antibiotic use within the first year of life. Some of them are, some of those prescriptions are definitely necessary. And so what our interest was, was trying to understand how we can reduce that risk of asthma in babies that need to have antibiotics within that first year. And so working with uh, the child study, which uh, has been following 3,500 families since um, the birth of their children for over a decade now, we actually came to appreciate that breastfeeding may actually be the most influential factor factor in protecting these babies from developing asthma when they need to receive antibiotics. Okay, and this all has to do with what we call the gut microbiome, right? We hear so much about that these days. Yes, yes. So we have come to appreciate how important the gut microbiome within that first year of life is for training our immune system and preventing the development of things like allergies and asthma. And when kids receive antibiotics, while that gut microbiome is still establishing within that first year, it can disrupt that balance within the microbiome. And what we appreciate now is that breastfeeding is actually a really good buffer for that. And it actually uh, helps to maintain that balance within the infant microbiota and prevent that disruption from the antibiotics. Okay, and what are some of the reasons, Dr. Peterson, that such young babies would need to take antibiotics? So in our study, we actually found that one of the um, highest reasons was actually ear infections at the time. Um, I think that that is not really as common anymore. I think we've come to appreciate that a lot of ear infections are viral and not bacterial, um, but I think that there, I mean, sepsis would be another one. There are, there are definite serious reasons why babies would need to take antibiotics. And our goal is to protect those babies from having uh, downstream risks from taking them. All right. So interesting. Then, so why is this research so unique? Had, had nobody looked into this before? So one of the power or the things that make the child study so powerful is just our size and the amount of Uh, data that we have been collecting on these infants and these families over a decade. I mean, we're so grateful to them because they continue to participate within the study and they continue to provide us with information like this. When you look at breastfeeding versus formula by itself, whether or not breastfeeding is protective against asthma 
has not really been clear. One of the things that our study found by using the child study and looking at all of this data was actually it's when kids receive antibiotics, that is when we can see a, a clear protective effect from breastfeeding. Oh, so interesting. So is there more research to be done on this then? There's definitely more research. So we're so encouraged by the fact that we can provide this message of just encouraging breastfeeding, supporting breastfeeding mothers, especially when their children have to receive antibiotics. But we realize that that is not an option for all mothers. And so the work is not done. What we would like to be able to do is afford the same protection in babies who have to receive antibiotics and can't be breastfed. And so what we have done and what we hope will continue to happen is we've identified a set of sugars in breast milk that are important, particularly for supporting some of the beneficial microbes that can actually have this protective effect to reduce asthma. And so what our hope is that we might be able to take these sugars and supplement babies who have to receive antibiotics and can't be breastfed and hopefully reduce their risk of asthma in the future. Right. So does this tell us then that we really, I mean, we already do emphasize breastfeeding, but can we do more? I mean, I think we can always do more to support mothers and um, especially when it comes to breastfeeding. Okay, so then what is your message to people out there who see this story? Uh, sometimes breastfeeding can be difficult, right? So does Children's Hospital, does BC Women's Hospital, do you feel like need to do more? Oh, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I think as a society, we could do more to support mothers and especially breastfeeding because you're right, it is difficult. But I think my two messages uh, for anyone who's interested in this story is one, to reduce antibiotic prescriptions and, and save them for when it's absolutely necessary. And the next step is just, like you said, to support breastfeeding mothers um, and, and encourage breastfeeding at least through the first six months of life. So interesting. Uh, Dr. Peterson, thank you for your time on that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Dr. Cherise Peterson is a research associate at the Turvey Lab at BC Children's Hospital. Uh, they were very involved in this study. Dr. Peterson is one of the lead authors of this. Uh, this study, very unique. They're calling it one of the first of its kind. And it shows that breastfeeding can protect newborns from childhood asthma risk uh, due to antibiotic exposure. So if a baby has to be on antibiotics, sometimes that, that leads to childhood asthma, problems with the gut microbiome, and they're finding that breastfeeding acts as like a, a modulator of the gut microbiome and really helps out. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk housing market, real estate. Boy, it's uh, no stretch to say there are some issues in that market right now. The Greater Vancouver Real Estate Board says home sales in the month of December dropped by 52%. Prices went down by 3%, and that is compared to December from a year ago. So let's break this down a little further. What is going on in the market? Well, joining us now is Andrew Liss, who's the Director of Economics and Data Analytics at the Greater Vancouver Real Estate Board. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here to explain this to us, because I know it's not any surprise that the market isn't doing as well, but that is that is quite a significant drop, isn't it? Yeah, when we look at the year-over-year -year figures, it's always, um, you know, it, I guess the thing to keep in mind is it's we're looking at points in time, right? Like, it's that's just two points in time. And where we are right now 
in the market is actually a little bit, you know, the story is a little different than just what those year-over-year numbers would say. So, it, you know, I can't sugarcoat it. We're certainly down year-over-year, year, about 50% in, in December in terms of sales. But we are also coming off a couple strong years. 2021 was really strong. Early 2022 was also really strong until, of course, the Bank of Canada started raising rates very rapidly, which, you know, had its very kind of uh, expected impact on the market of really putting a damper on sales. Right. So when you're breaking down the numbers and looking at the data, is this these drop in sales, is this happening everywhere or are there certain pockets seeing bigger drops than others? Yeah, it does vary across the, the market. But I mean, overall, like I said, you can't sugarcoat the numbers. The, the, the sales are down pretty hard. It's, it's somewhere around 50 percent to you know, almost everywhere you look. But on the annual totals, it's a little less uh, dour, if you will. It's a, down around 34 percent. Uh, and again, that, that when you total up on the annuals, the reason for that slightly lower uh, decline is that the early part of 22 was actually still pretty strong. So it was really that latter chunk of 2022 that's uh, dragging the market down. So was that, do you think, as a result of the interest rate rising? Yeah, in my opinion, I mean, that's the big story. I, I really think it's a story we're going to see continuing into 2023. It's just... Uh, it's hard to shake it. It's, it. It has a lot to do with the inflation figures that are coming out and they, they show a persistent level of inflation. And, you know, the Bank of Canada's mandate is to control inflation. And they really, really want to get that number down towards what they call their target level of one to three percent. And right now we're well above that. And it's, you know, despite all the big increases in rates, we've had about four percent increase in, in, uh, in, you know, the policy rate in January since January of 2022. And that's you know, that's a very big increase in a historical perspective, but stubbornly interest rate or sorry, uh, inflation remains fairly high. So uh, I, I do think rates are going to have to remain uh, elevated for a little while uh, until we actually see inflation start coming down meaningfully. OK, so where is there any activity going on out there that you think is noteworthy? Some some pockets that are still seeing some good sales happen. Yeah, I think like an interesting thing is when we when we kind of look at it, um, so if you, look, if you use the sales tax listing ratio, which gives us a kind of measure of the balance of supply and demand in the market, it, it, it's kind of interesting because down if, 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 if that ratio is around 12 percent, you're talking something like a buyer's market. And if it's above 20 percent, it's more of a seller's market. When you look across the board, you've got detached um, homes or the, the sales tax listings ratio is about 12 percent there. So it's more in the buyer's market territory. But you flip over to the apartment side of it. And you're somewhere around 22% on that sales tax listings ratio, which is actually verging into more of sellers territory. So it's really a mixed market as, as, you know, buyers and sellers kind of adjust to this higher interest rate environment. And of course, with the higher rates, people are more price sensitive and it's harder to get financing. And so that means there's going to be a bit more pressure on those kind of what we call like affordability oriented segments of the market. Right. But given that, you know, you saw sales go down 52% year over year, but prices only came down 3% year over year. Now, does that tell us kind of what is happening in the market? Is it perhaps those prices remaining a little stubbornly high? Yeah, again, so it's, it's those year over year figures that are kind of tricky, because when we look at, you know, right now where we are, you know, December or January of last year, that wasn't quite the peak. The peak of the market that we saw in pricing was actually in the spring of 2022. So if we look over the last six months, the HPI composite index is telling us that you know, prices are down around 10% roughly from the peak, which is a bigger decline than you know, what, what the uh, year-over-year figures are showing. But with that said, 
you know, there it does look to me in the latest data that I'm looking at that prices are starting to sort of stabilize. And it, it wouldn't actually surprise me to see some slight increases in prices into 2023. What? Uh, despite the rate hike. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know it sounds I know it sounds unbelievable. But, uh, you know, the way that I would explain that is that we are still in a very low inventory situation. There's something, you know, about 8000 listings available on the MLS system. And that's for all of the people in Metro Vancouver who want to buy a home. You know, that's really, it's just not a huge amount of listings. Historically, there's about 10,000 around this kind of period of time. So it's, you know, we're still just kind of undersupplied there. And there just isn't enough new listings coming to market to really boost those inventory levels to the point where you start seeing, you know, big declines in prices and stuff. It's, it's still a, a tricky market that way for buyers out there, especially anybody who's very price sensitive. That is so interesting. So if you're going, if you are going to sell your place, you're going to have that ability, the luxury of perhaps being the only house on your street that is for sale. It's quite possible. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I do think, you know, if you are selling, you're, you're going to have to work with a realtor to manage the expectations around what you can get for pricing and how long it may take for you to sell your home, because we are in a very different market environment from that perspective. Just because we have low inventory doesn't mean that things are moving super, super quickly or that you're going to get that multiple offer scenario that we saw was so common in the past uh, year or two. All right. So then looking, what else do you look ahead for 2023? What do you see happening? So 2020, so we, we have a forecast that will be coming out uh, somewhere mid-month. It's uh, not fully edited yet, uh, so, but I can give you a little spe- sneak peek into that. And, uh, you know, a bit of a spoiler alert, it's kind of a boring forecast. It's it's. <laughs> It's going to, in my view, I think 2023 on the annual totals, when when the year's all said and done, I think things are going to kind of shake out to look a lot like 2022 ended. And, and, you know, the reasons for that are that we're going to probably remain in this elevated interest rate or mortgage rate environment, which is probably going to keep sales somewhat subdued. However, like I said, I think the inventory situation is one that's not going to resolve quickly. I think we're going to continue to have pretty low inventories even into the spring. And, and if you have low inventory and then you have that surge of demand that traditionally comes with the spring market, uh, you know, it would not surprise me to see increases in prices at that point in time, just based on the fact that there just isn't enough inventory to right. go around for everybody who wants a, a home. Do we know what people are looking for? Like what's, is it condos? Is it townhouses? Is it single family homes? Yeah, like I said, I think that sales to active listings ratio gives us a little bit of a, an indicator into that. And like I said, would, you know, when we see that the apartment or the townhome segment are still in that kind of 20% range in the sales to active listings ratio, it's, it's indicating to us that those are the sort of stronger segments of the market, which, if you think about it, is a little bit logical, right? Because they're a bit more um, affordable, if you will, right, than the detached segment. So I think that's going to be the the segment to watch um, going forward into 2023. And as well, I mean, the detached one is going to be a big bellwether as well of, of whether we see people, buyers and sellers coming into the market who are able to adjust to the new interest rate environment and afford those higher priced homes. It's such a contradictory thing, though, isn't it? The way you even describe it. Oh, I know. It's, it's just a really weird market that we're in right now. That's, I mean, honestly, that would be a word I would use to describe it. It's just strange. It's unlike ones that we've seen historically. And I mean, the big... The big, uh, you know, it factor is obviously the, the interest rates. It's just it's we, we just haven't seen a rate hike this large or a cycle this large for a very long time. So it's, it's quite unusual. Uh, you know, I think you have to go back to the 1980s to see 
uh, you know, parallels to this. However, I would caution that this, this market looks very different than the 1980s did. Uh, yeah. you know, so interest rates aren't 20 something percent at this point yeah. in time, right? So <laughs> interesting times for sure. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're more than welcome. Anytime. Andrew List, Director of Economics and Data Analytics for the Greater Vancouver Real Estate Board, talking about, as he put it, this weird housing market that we find ourselves in where prices kind of staying stubbornly high. Sales, though, way, way down. And you think that that would put downward pressure on prices, but it hasn't. And that is because there is so little inventory actually on the market. Really interesting times.